Welcome to the future of NFTs, brought to you by Adlunum, the first engaged to earn proof of attention IDO launchpad. Hosted by co-founder and CEO, Natya Vester, we bring you exclusive insights on NFTs, the revolutionary digital technology that's transforming the world as we know it. Hey, Web3 world, this is Natya Vester from Adlunum, and you are listening to The Future of NFTs the show that looks beyond the current NFT use cases to what non-fungible token technology is evolving into. All this as seen through the eyes and built by the minds of the fascinating guest speakers we speak to each week. More about Adlunum, we are building the industry's first IDEO launchpad with a proof of attention allocation mechanism. And the future of NFTs are really important to us because our investor profiles use dynamic NFTs, which allows for fractionalization of allocation, which is the backbone behind our engage to earn model. So on that note, welcome to our second episode. We are still in the baby phase here with uh, at Future of NFTs. We are hosting the show live every Tuesday, or you can also listen to it via the podcast. And also be sure to listen to Adlunum's other show, Diving Into Crypto, every Thursday for all things Web3. All right, so on to today, very, very special day because we are going deep. I'm going to be talking inclusivity with Mika Marple, who is an artist and a writer joining us today from Los Angeles. She's the co-founder of NFT Tuesday LA the creator of the generative NFT collection, the Medusa collection, which reframes the Medusa myth, uh, really something very interesting that we're we'll talking about today. She's a former art gallery owner, the Night Gallery in Los Angeles. Uh, she's also a philanthropist who, through her art, has contributed over a million dollars to organizations like Planned Parenthood, Critical Resistance, and actually through the Medusa collection, which we'll hear about shortly, she also contributes, I believe, 25% of each sale to the nonprofit Teach Rock. So really, really amazing to have you with us today, Mika. Uh, Mika is a visionary artist who, who uses visual mediums to tell a very powerful story. And I think her work in the NFT space contributes greatly to this sort of underground continuation of carving out the industry into a more diversified, all people's welcome representation of humans in Web3 and not only, you know, certain uh, cohorts of people. So for that reason, awesome to be talking to you today. Uh, we'll open it up to questions at the end. So you can then put in a speaker request or just message your questions to the Adlunum Twitter handle at Adlunum Inc. All right, so Mika, in addition to a lot of the publicity in the art world, um, you've also been covered in mainstream media like the New York Times, W Magazine, The Guardian. So I'd like to get an understanding of you as someone from the traditional art world uh, who's now extending and expanding your work into the NFT space. And from the looks of it, you continue to focus on this intersection of mythology, power, commerce, through a feminist and a social-emotional lens. 
So I'd like to start with what got you here. Tell us more about you, your background, uh, what makes you tick. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a pretty interesting story how I got into NFTs. Um, so I feel like a few things I should say. Um, yeah, I did. I went to art school, but I studied traditional mediums, you know, painting, <laughs> charcoal drawing, just is pretty um, nothing to do with technology. Uh, I am, however, from Silicon Valley. Um, I grew up in a family of engineers. Um, when I was an art dealer, basically for my 20s, um, I sold paintings exclusively. Um, it was very, very hard to sell any kind of digital medium uh, that, you know, there would be this false scarcity through editions, but it just never really clicked for people. And then when I left at 30 to focus on myself and my art and writing, um, I again started with paintings. That was my background. That was all that I knew. And I, and I continued to make paintings, but in February of last year, so February 2021, my partner told me about a friend of his that had sold a painting and then separately sold an image of the painting. And I thought this was the craziest thing I ever heard. I was like, why would anyone pay money for an image they could could buy, could get for free from a website? But, you know, I also, I thought, you know, if there is a way to make money without doing more work, I was, you know, interested. And so I, those were my first NFTs. They were just really simple, just photographs of my paintings that were on my website. And they sold right away to an amazing collector, um, Jihan Chu, who two weeks later put me in a, a benefit auction, uh, the carbon dropped on Nifty Gateway that had eight artists total. And Beeple was one of them, and Rafik Anadol was another. It was just this, I mean, some fuck render, and just some of the best artists in the space. And then somehow I was there with this picture of my painting, <laughs> which sold for the equivalent of uh, 25,500-something U.S. dollars. And I was just, you know, this all happened in a matter of, two, three weeks. And so I was pretty speechless with NFTs. Uh, I mean, it just, it was just so, the whole thing just seemed like a weird um, hallucination or something. <laughs> um, but then, you know, of course, like after that, there was like a mini, a mini crash or sort of like a mini dip. And even then, like a lot of people left um, and I just found myself still interested. I was like really engaged and I realized that like, aha, I actually, I'm just like the rest of my family. Like I'm really interested in tech, um, maybe not as like a coder, but from a cultural perspective, I'm fascinated by tech's impact on, on culture. And so I kept with NFTs and I only got deeper and deeper into it and of course, just selling pictures of my paintings wasn't very interesting to me ultimately. So that's how I got into 
making a generative collection and I can get more into that, but that's basically my, my, uh, my, how I got into here. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that fascinating story. I love how you encapsulate this idea of, you know, this prevailing idea of an artist having to choose between passion on the one hand and money on the other. And I think this is something that the NFT space definitely is bringing to the fore is really connecting artists, not only to the passion that they have for the work, but also the monetary possibilities that are out there. Um, it always makes me think of the Renaissance period um, a couple of hundred years ago when there were these patrons who supported artists and therefore we are now left with some of you know, the world's most amazing artworks uh, from that period. So I also like how you highlight this roller coaster ride of being in Web3 and how easy it is for crazy things to happen. The opportunities that are in the space is something that it simply doesn't happen in other industries that are more well-established, uh, you know, more sort of on the straight and narrow, so to speak. You know, the, the, the roads have been laid over and over again a million times. And here we still are in this really genesis period of everyone co-creating together. And at the same time, of course, um, yeah, things like being on a show with people a couple of weeks after becoming an NFT artist is very possible in, in the space. Um, and also really resonated with what you said about being interested in tech from a cultural perspective rather than a technical perspective. Because I think there's, there's this prevailing myth around the industry that it's very technical. So you either have to have a high level of technical knowledge or high level of, let's say, financial knowledge, and that there's not as much space for everyone else. Um, but I think, again, coming back to this idea of we are building out this new world together, it definitely takes all sorts. Um, speaking of worlds, so I studied and I even guest lectured in mythology at university years ago. So I'm especially mindful of the way in which world mythologies have shaped cultural narratives, often to the detriment of minorities such as women. So I would love to hear more about the Medusa collection and why this choice of topic in this industry at this time. Yeah, um, well, that's, that's amazing to hear about your background. Uh, yeah, so the Medusa collection... So I, I actually started drawing Medusa in 2019 as paintings. And I did it to work through some of my own feelings of monstrousness, actually, because I used to be an art dealer and I was, a, I was actually a very successful art dealer. And I felt, um, you know, like it felt like everyone wanted to, to be associated with me and sort of like a piece of me. And, and when I left in 2016 um, to focus on myself, it kind of, I felt like everybody fall away. And it was really, I took it very personally. I felt like there was something wrong with me. And yeah, and so I felt like drawing a female monster. And then when I started drawing Medusa, I actually learned her whole story, which I didn't know before, which was that she had actually, she was a rape victim, that she'd been raped by the god Poseidon. 
and turned into a monster by his wife, the god Athena. This is according to Ovid's Metamorphosis from 2 AD, which is the story that we most, that's most popularized. Um, and yeah, the, you know, what the, the part of the Medusa story that everyone knows, of course, is the beheading by Perseus. Um, and so it was just, it spoke volumes to me that we actually didn't know this very tragic part of Medusa and sort of why she became a monster. And, and I felt the fact that, that we don't scratch under the surface to find out why people are monsters said a lot. Um, yeah, and that, and that also the fact that so many of the people we think of as quote-unquote monsters actually start off as, as victims or survivors of abuse I, I found that also very much to be true. Um, so this, on all these levels, it really, really resonated with me. And I, and I, I wanted to do something that put Medusa in this aspect of her life uh, forward so we could really see her humanity. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, I think or what you said about these unspoken narratives about why people are monsters. Um, we only look to the villain end result. I mean, this is what Hollywood is built on. Uh, sometimes we get the orig origin story for the bad guy, but most of the time it's really just about, you know, what they are doing now and all of the mayhem that they are causing and who cares about why they got that way. Um, I thought about this now, even in the in the Web3 space, uh, we are so often focused only on this narrative around making as much gains as possible. And, you know, each person is in it for themselves. And it's a legacy mentality that we are bringing with us. Uh, but with the difference being in Web3, we also have this additional opportunity um, to shape narrative in a way that we couldn't in those traditional industries. So I know that you've also spoken about the Medusa collection as being representative of society at large. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think we all have this capacity to see ourselves as monsters and to make other people monsters, you know, and I think in some ways, like the more we see ourselves in the monster, the more likely we are to have compassion um, for ourselves and for other people. And I think just going back to what you were saying, you know, I, there's this tendency to think in binaries, right? And it's uh, maybe almost this like legacy from Christianity that, that there's such a thing as good and evil and some people are inherently good, and then some people just come into this world as evil. And um, I just don't think that's true at all, <laughs> ever, right? There are, you know, usually an accumulation of traumatic events that, that cause someone to become mistrustful, that cause them to, you know... Um, see other people as means to an end and it's because they were treated as such um, 
And so I think, you know, the, the more we try to see the whole person, um, the more compassion there will be in this world. Absolutely. I think that binary thoughts are easier to softer, easier on the brain than complexity. It's so much easier for us to jump to a simple binary solution or conclusion rather than, you know, look at the big picture and understand how all the different moving parts fit together. It's often that saying, uh, if a butterfly flaps, it, flaps its wings, it's affected by the winds in the Sahara Desert or something. I think I'm completely messing up this, uh, <laughs> this saying. But uh, on that note, you know, I think definitely this is one of the deepest NFT conversations that I have ever had uh, in this space. So I would love to know from your perspective, what is unique about your approach to NFTs? Yeah, I love this question because I, I do think there is quite a lot that is u- unique about my approach and it just has to do with my background and interests. I mean, I think first when I launched the Medusa collection in December of 2021, um, you know, I, I like I mentioned, I have this deep traditional art background. I'm interested, obviously, in sort of Western art history. The Medusas in my Medusa collection reference specific canonical uh, sculptures of Medusa, or sometimes Medusa Perseus with Medusa, but I only draw Medusa, um, by these Italian, like very famous Italian artists, um, uh, Cellini, Canova, Bernini. And so I have this like very deep relationship with art history and traditional art. And so I think bringing that into the NFT space where, you know, especially last year, it just like a lot of the references um, are, you know, the, the sort of like reference the history of pixel art or sort of these more, more contemporary, more recent references. And so I really wanted to, I really wanted to bring in like deep history into this space um, because I think that kind of gravitas is needed and, and makes it, it gives gives something last like staying power, um, which is also something I don't see as much in the space. And then, of course, with that, to also bring some pretty serious content um, to be talking about something, you know, not superficial. <laughs> that's not about wag me, or <laughs> you know, just something that kind of looks cool and um looks sort of like fun and friendly and is like cool to post on my twitter profile um like i wanted to use this as an opportunity to talk about things that meant a lot to me and i know meant a lot to other people and are maybe not talked about openly as much um sort of sexual abuse and you know why and the sort of whitewashing of this and history and, you know, these sort of very important but potentially uncomfortable conversations. And that also, you know, I think what is the, what has been amazing to me about the Medusa collection is that, 
you know, I think in this space, we're so used to seeing the sort of boom bust or just like things like there's an idea or there was to me that that if something didn't sell out in the first day, that it was a bust <laughs> and that and even if it did sell out, it could easily be forgotten in two, three months <laughs> that. And that was kind of it. It's like you kind of had to hope to, like I said, there's there's no sort of like slow growth. Um, there's no kind of uh, slow burn. Um, or, But my experience with Medusa Collection is like, <laughs> it keeps gaining momentum. Like it little, like kind of little by little, like I still am getting opportunities to speak about it. This is seven months later. I was just on the cover of this um, computer graphics magazine. Um, I was on the cover of LA Weekly, like, uh, just like a month ago. Like, <laughs> in some ways, yeah, it's like I it, it is kind of proving that not everything has to be this, like, instant sellout. There, if you... And I think that, sorry, <laughs> I think that all has to come, that all comes back to the content and the the depth of the piece, which has taken time for people to digest. And, you know, sometimes things take time to, for people to like fully understand and appreciate. And it just takes a little bit longer to catch, but it doesn't mean that it won't. Yeah, that is beautifully said. Uh, I was thinking as you were speaking that you know the NFT space in general is this bringing together of you know some of the history of art into the future of art. So it's this blending of the history and the future of art. But I love how you very specifically then also focus on the history of art as a whole and then use this in this archetypal manner to continue the conversation. And as you say, allow people, even in this very fast moving space where your NFT has literally its 15 minutes of fame, you are creating something that allows people to take in as much as they can at any specific time and then revisit at a later time when there's a deeper and more nuanced understanding. So definitely from that perspective, it is a very unique approach uh, in the NFT space. But at the same time, I'm hoping that we'll see more of this kind of mentality going forward. Um, speaking of NFTs and where we are going, uh, what do you foresee for the future of this technology? Like what's going to look different tomorrow or maybe what should look, look, what should look different tomorrow than today? Yeah, um, I, I guess one thing I kind of just want to say in response to what you were talking about, it, you know, there is this idea that time moves 10 times faster or maybe more <laughs> in the NFT space than quote unquote regular, the regular world. And I would, and I think in some ways that's true, but I would also encourage, encourage people to resist that. Um, I think it's important to be adaptable because things do change quickly, but not too adaptable. Like you don't want to be chasing trends. And I think it's just important for people to, you know, 
feel okay taking their time making something. Um, and not this idea that, yeah, I don't know, like it, it, it time doesn't actually move faster. <laughs> There's one time we're all in it and the space is more volatile. I think that's what makes it feel like time moves faster. You know, since I've been in the space, uh, February of 2021, there's been already like two, like one dip, one winter, two peaks, <laughs> you know, that's, that's wild. Um, but time doesn't actually move faster. It's just more volatile. And, and I think if you're chasing the crests of that volatility, um, you're going to make something pretty superficial and you're going to make something that isn't as strong and lasting as it can be. So, yeah, I would just encourage people not to not to believe that that time does move faster and that they have to rush or chase anything. Um, but you're asking sort of about where things are going yeah, um, it's interesting. So I can answer that on two levels, like maybe where things are going short term and where I think things are going long term. You know, in the short term, as many of you know, we're in this quote unquote crypto winter, um, which it, it's a bear market. And yeah, things are not <laughs> selling for as much or as often as they were before. And this happened before, of course, in 2018 and 19. Um, I would know I wasn't in the space, but I know a few people that were. And they said sales basically came to a complete stop then. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen this time. <laughs> but there will be there will be a slowing down there are people that were in the space for purely financial reasons will leave. And I think what is nice is that who is still here will be the people that have a long-term interest in NFTs and who have genuine connections with like, this is their community. Um, this is where their friends are and they're not going anywhere. And I think very, you know, everyone says this is a builder's market. Um, this is the time when people build. And I think that's, I think that's true. I think, you know, this is, there will be more experimentation here that will lead to very interesting innovations. Um, because exper experimentation requires time and it kind of requires not having pressure to make money. Um, I think for it to be very, to, for it to be genuine. So I think that is what's happening. Or that is what will happen. You know, and I've, I have seen this like a lot, an interest, the, the like dynamic NFTs, which I think you mentioned at the very beginning, which are very interesting to me. Um, that's kind of, I think, going to just continue to grow. Um, I think between generative art and dynamic NFTs, these are these are very interesting to me because this these are 
properties of NFTs that only NFTs have, <laughs> you know, I mean, of course, you, you theoretically could make generative or dynamic art that that wasn't an NFT. But I think these qualities just work so well with the medium, you know, when they can be coded into the NFT. And so I think NFTs are really discovering what they are and what they can do and what they can do that only they can do or what they can do best and how they can sort of lean even more into what they are, you know? I think for a lot of, you know, it's like, it's such a new medium. I think it's still sort of looking to old ways of doing things. <laughs> um, you know, when the car came out, people still sort of thought it thought of it as like a horseless carriage. They're still referencing the thing that came before it. Um, and it took a while before that went away. So I think the same thing is happening with NFTs. I love how you mention this idea that a builder's market requires experimentation, requires time and spaciousness, you know, to really experiment with what's possible. And also this idea that similar to people finding themselves, which takes time, it takes time for us to grow into our own identities and also to shift and change identities. NFTs are in exactly the same position. I mean, it's this, you know, it's like this teenage pop star that just came on the scene. And I mean, we know how that goes. We've seen these trajectories from people who have become famous and we know that the stories don't end up uh, being very pretty for a time. But that's really the time that we need as people, as a community, as an industry to really just figure ourselves out. Um, and yeah, coming back to this idea that the volatility is what makes it feel like we are hurtling through space at like rocket speed. But then in those times, that's only really a focus on the growth in terms of numbers. So how big the community is getting and how many, you know, investments we are making and how much is being, you know, how much token movement there is. And it's all very, very price related. Um, but if we are going to build out a sustainable industry that's about so much more than just these temporary momentary roller coaster rides, then for sure we need the space. So I love yeah, the linking of this idea of it's, going too fast and therefore it needs to slow down so it can come to an even speed again. Um, I think you've already touched on this, but what would you say is hindering progress or mass adoption? We, we hear a lot about NFTs being a huge potential for mass adoption, but I think at the same time, we also realize that mass adoption is a really long way away. So what is going on there? Do we even want mass adoption or where are we going with all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think mass adoption is inevitable. Um, and I also, I guess I just, while you were talking, I was just thinking, I just had this image, I'll come back to this question about, you know, there's this sort of meditation trick where you think of an ocean um, and, you know, there can be like a storm uh, at the, there can be a storm and so there are these like crazy waves at the surface of the ocean. Um, but you don't want to be the waves. You want to be the sort of depths 
of the ocean where everything is calm because um, the waves that's just surface and it doesn't really it doesn't really depict the majority of the ocean it's just a very it's just like a skim coat so I think that's kind of the attitude to have about nfts is that this volatility is it's just the surface of a much bigger vaster thing um and i i heard this i i was interviewed by this um sort of financial consultancy firm and they told me this statistic that actually gen z so ages 18 through 24 actually are more likely to buy NFT than stock, which I thought was really interesting. And yeah, you know, so in some ways, like there already is kind of some mass adoption. It's just with a very, it's a much younger generation. And of course, I think as, as they get older, it will kind of just happen naturally. And, you know, I think also things will, uh, the more user interface, the easier like user interfaces become and it's already so much easier than it used to be. The more people will join, you know, the more people have their like friends joining, they'll join. The more, <laughs> the, the less sort of scams there are of people losing everything that's in their wallet to a fisher. Um, all of that, I think is, it's already going that way. And so I, I kind of don't even think there's much we need to do other than just keep doing what we're all doing already. And it will happen, you know, uh, when it's meant to, it's already happening. Absolutely. I think it comes back to this idea of time and space that is needed in order to discover what direction we are going to take. So this, you know, down market, this winter that we have right now is almost like a recalibration of what is working, what is not working. And I mean, after things are recalibrated, we cannot go back to what we've did previously. So we need to continue to improve. And I think as more and more people come into the space, um, it's inevitable that both good and bad practices. So we are very well aware of the bad practices that people are bringing into the space, but also I think to be very mindful of all of the good practices that people are taking from the traditional spaces that they are coming from and also introducing that here. Um, so on that, on that note, I want to ask you the next question. So you have spoken about your background in the traditional art world. Um, so with this foot in both worlds, one in that world, one in uh, NFT space, and also as, you know, by virtue of being involved with NFT art at this time, you are also then one of the early architects of what art and NFTs are going to look like. So I wonder, in your opinion, what NFTs and the traditional art world can learn from each other? And we can consider examples like Noah Davis, the uh, head of digital for Christie's, who has changed industries to become the brand leader for CryptoPunks, um, or the Ryder Rips lawsuit, which accuses Yuga Labs, the creators of Board Apes and CryptoPunks, of having an underlying racist agenda. 
So what are your thoughts on the learnings between these two worlds and what they can take from each other? Yeah, yeah, there's so much. Um, so interesting, too, because I just bought an NFT by Marina Ambronovich, who just uh, launched her first NFT project yesterday. Um, so, and I was really thinking about you know, sort of what she had done well and what could have, what she could have done better. Um, and I won't get into it, but I did, in the end, I actually just realized, like, it's just great that she's just doing this period. <laughs> um, because she really is connecting with a generation that I think the art world just doesn't, is doesn't really speak to. And you know, I think that's one of the biggest missed opportunities um, in the traditional art world that it could learn from the NFT world is, yeah, how to connect with this like Gen Z generation that, who for them, you know, sort of digital mediums and um, sort of digital avatars are, are, are seamless part of their life. And, you know, that, that wasn't necessarily, I, I'm 36 and I mean, I grew up with the internet um, pretty like uh, early um, because I was in Silicon Valley, but yeah, I mean, I think you have to, even if that wasn't your personal experience, like you have to be curious about it. I think you, we just have to stay curious people. Um, you know, not judging things just because they maybe aren't familiar to us. And I think what the, because I, I was actually just on this Benzinga um, podcast and I was telling the host that, you know, I think if a 20 year old walks into a white walled gallery um, with just paintings on the wall and no one talking, no, no wall text, no one talking them through it, um, no music, no anything, <laughs> you know, like, like, it's just not going to hold their attention. Um, it kind of barely holds my attention anymore, to be honest. Um, so I think this, you know, learning how to engage in a more contemporary way is definitely something the traditional art world needs to learn. And then I think, you know, I, I think I kind of actually already touched on this, but what I think the NFT space could adopt from the traditional art world space is taking a little bit more time to be, to do things with more rigor. Um, and, I, and also on a really basic level, I think that, I've seen at this point a good amount of NFT exhibitions <laughs> and I don't, I, you know, learning how to do compelling things in analog space in the physical world is a learned skill that I don't think um, a lot of NFT artists or just NFT people at all um, have a lot of experience with and therefore know how to do well. You know, I think there's people are still struggling to know how to even display their NFTs. So there's a lot to be figured out about, you know, how to 
bring this rich NFT world into the physical world and how to do so with, with rigor and criticality. Um, and some of these things that just require a little bit more time and a little bit more reflection and aren't just going at the speed of cutting edge technology. Um, so that's something that I think the NFT world could could benefit from the traditional art world. I think that is a fascinating comparison um, and it definitely highlights the fact that every industry contributes to another industry that it comes into contact and in touch with. Um, so nothing is ever happening in a silo. I mean, we are a legacy society that comes from things that we've already learned, you know, the wisdom of the ancestors, so to speak. And we are carrying this with us even into these new industries. So really just on the thought of NFTs are groundbreaking. They are really at the forefront of where we are going with a lot of technology and the monetary system. But at the same day, they at the same time, they are not immune to, you know, getting a little bit of wisdom from uh, the elders, so to speak. Uh, but on that note... Um, I know that in the traditional art world, there's a lot of gatekeeping, which obviously, you know, a lot of the buzz around NFTs in the art space is this idea, as we've touched on uh, earlier in the in the interview, that people are more easily able to, for example, get access to uh, funds for their art in this space. But I wonder what role do you reckon can NFTs play to increase inclusion, diversity, and how will this extend to the world even beyond uh, Web3? Yeah, that's the ultimate question. Um, and I feel like I keep doing this, I go back to earlier things, but I do, I didn't realize I didn't touch on this or on Noah Davis or the writer Rips. Um, so I wonder if I can, I can touch on that and then sort of segue into this topic. But um, you know, I think Noah Davis leaving Christie's for uh, Yuga Labs kind of did speak to, you know, Noah Davis is pretty young. I don't know how old he is exactly, but um, I think he might still be in his 20s. And I think that in a way, like Yuga Labs, like, um, and CryptoPunks just felt closer to who he was than this than than Christie's with its you know with its like very old sort of slow moving systems um and even though they were pretty early into nfts i know from people i've talked to that they really still were doing things in, in a pretty old-fashioned way that the bidding didn't actually happen on chain and yeah, that there was just a lot of, um, that it it wasn't sort of, it didn't really deeply get the Web3 ethos. Um, so I think, you know, that's a lot of what is happening there. Um, and then with the Ryder Rips lawsuit, and I think, you know, this is actually, this is pretty super interesting i think it kind of sends two messages one that you you know you can't it's <laughs> nfts aren't just this lawless space where you can do kind of whatever you want without repercussion 
Um, and at the same time, which I think is what it's known for, right? That's like kind of an image it has um, and not an untrue image. And then at the same time, you can't make this insensitive imagery that's just targeting sort of tech bros without getting some, you know, <laughs> some called out on it, basically. Um, which is also, I think, what the NFT space is known for. So so I think this lawsuit is actually extremely interesting for, for both sides. Like they're kind of a little, they're both in the wrong. And I think that's kind of what makes, and they both, they both epitomize sort of what so many people dislike about the NFT space, including myself. So I think that lawsuit is fascinating. And I think that's actually kind of a good way to segue into the topic of inclusivity, inclusivity because because both those things, sort of bro culture and sort of lawless, um, just lawlessness, they both favor basically cis white men. <laughs> And they both make it very hard for marginalized groups to succeed. And so I think, you know, the more it's talked about, like why certain imagery is offensive and why it's not okay to just do whatever you want, it will make it a safer space for for marginalized people. And of course, that's not really enough. Like there has to be so much more have an active effort to foreground marginalized voices. And, you know, hopefully the Medusa collection is part of that kind of culture of uplifting those voices. But yeah, there's just like, I think you mentioned gatekeeping. I think this is very interesting because there's an idea that there is no gatekeeping in the NFT space and that this is a positive thing somehow. <laughs> but the truth is there's still there's lots of gatekeeping and the fact is when there's no quote unquote gatekeeping and it there's still gatekeeping because basically it's the people that can you know afford to be on Twitter all the time that maybe are really familiar with Twitter culture which, you know, tends to just favor <laughs> bros and, and sort of like antagonistic bros. And yeah, it's like all of, all of that stuff, maybe it's not gatekeeping as we traditionally think of it, but it, like in this attention economy, there is still gatekeeping just by like who pe most people pay the attention to or who can be the loudest and and who which of the loudest people are people more likely to pay attention to and there's all these just sort of like inherent uh biases that that make that true i think what you highlighted about both the necessity of gatekeeping as well as gatekeeping again being the sort of heritage that we come with uh, into the space is really important, especially this idea of bro culture that continues and then also 
this microcosm on Twitter where if you only look at Twitter, it can give you a very, very different idea of how things are going and who is participating. Uh, that's not necessarily the reality of what is unfolding with all of these marginalized voices. Um, it also made me think uh, when you were mentioning Christie's and kind of doing <laughs> the auction off chain, um, similar to having, you know, this idea of greenwashing where companies jump on the green, organic, environmentally friendly bandwagon when it suits them, or even Pride Month uh, that is being misappropriated by brands only for the month of June. Um, I think in this space we have NFT washing or Web3 washing of companies jumping on this bandwagon without, as you say, encapsulating the ethos uh, that, you know, this is all trying to build. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I personally came into the Web3 space and it's also the reason I stay because I have founded the only industry that I've ever been involved with. And keeping in mind, I came from pharma before I came into uh, this industry. So it's like really chalk and cheese um, where average people can have a collective influence and literally have a sizable influence on how things change shape. But of course, I think we see this with everything that we as a society are involved with. Humans always bring their humanness with them wherever they go whether it's, you know, their fears or their prejudices, coping mechanisms. So yeah, this is why we can never have nice things. Um, but at the same time, society genuinely, as you were mentioning earlier about the monster inside all of us and how we came to be this way, I think it's also really important to understand that the society as a whole has never had equal opportunities to many different things, to all things. And up until the point where we can have that level of inclusion and um, religious empowerment of everyone that shares, you know, this collective space, uh, which is Earth, uh, we are always going to have difficulties with these kind of conversations, some groups uh, that are, of course, being objectified in some way, um, characterized, but at the same time, uh, very powerful influence on the way that things are going. So I am mindful of time. I'm wondering, uh, I just want to get back to the Medusa collection. So this conversation that this collection has sparked is very significant because, as you said earlier, it houses, you know, some of society's dirtiest laundry, uh, whether that's sexual violence or misogyny in pop culture, politics, uh, even public policy. Uh, I want to read a quote from LA Weekly who said, the Medusa collection fights back against the oldest and newest violence in this historically restorative and futurist futuristically utopian vision. So I would love to know what impact has it had on you personally to create the Medusa collection and what have you learned from it? Oh my God. <laughs> I'll try to be quick too, because I, I, I know we have limited time, but although I'm, I'm happy to stay as long as, as everyone wants. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the collection really changed my life. Um, I mean, first making generative art was a completely new experience for me. Um, having really only made paintings before, 
And it was the first time I had ever handed over creative decision-making to an algorithm, right? I set up the parameters and the sort of elements for the algorithm to choose from, but ultimately the algorithm put those elements together into a, a set of final images. And that, and I, that was a huge act for me, just personally, that letting go of control. And I think what astounded me was that the result felt more me than anything I'd made before. Uh, by letting go of control, I was kind of able to access a deeper aspect of myself. Um, the, the Medusa collection felt more wild and alive and full of color and expression than anything I'd done before. And I realized that that was in me and that had been in me this whole time. I just needed to kind of just loosen up <laughs> to let it, to, to free it and let it come into the world. Um, and, you know, then of course, making the way that the art world works is that you make, you know, a, a handful of paintings a year and they sell for very high amounts to a, a small group of collectors. And even within the art world, uh, all the galleries are basically fighting for the resources of, you know, the same 50 to 100 collectors, more or less. And so this, it was a very different economic model making generative art where you make a large volume at a, a reasonable price. And yeah, that was, that was also game changing for me because, you know, I, when I made the paintings of Medusa, which, you know, were selling for upwards of $10,000 their status as luxury commodities, I felt hindered the conversation that I wanted to have. Um, and so kind of making the price, you know, the Medusa, depending on the price of ETH, it's anywhere from like, you know, 70 to 100 or something dollars. And it just felt like I was able to have a very different, more connected conversation with with the owners of that work. Thanks, Mika. Yeah, I, I feel like this line you said um, needs to go on one of those social media graphic quotes uh, about letting go of control. You get to access, access this deeper part of yourself, which is wild and alive. So I absolutely love that takeaway from the collection. And very interesting, you're mentioning uh, your paintings as having the status of a luxury commodity, but that hinders the impact it might have. And by having this very real-time conversation with the holders of your NFT art, um, it also really brings to the fore this idea that part and parcel of digital art, and especially NFT art, is the ability to connect artist and investor in a way that I don't think the traditional art world focuses on or even is possible in the same way because of the connected nature of the space that we are in. So 
This has been amazing. Um, I, yeah, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to talk about inclusion and diversity and all of these really deep topics uh, that, as I said earlier, I don't think I've had this deep a conversation about an NFT collection or even NFTs in general. So it's been my absolute pleasure. I'm going to open it up to the audience now. So if you have any questions for Mika, go ahead and request to speak. Or if you don't want your name used, you can also DM the Adlunum Twitter handle, Adlunum Inc. with your question. So I will give it a few seconds, up to a minute, and then uh, start with. Oh, I see we already have a question. Uh, so what is your favorite upcoming NFT group, uh, like Bored Apes, CryptoPunks, etc.? Which one are you most excited to see? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think the question is sort of about PFP collections, um, <clears throat> which stands for profile pick. Um, and I think it's interesting because maybe because it's a down market, um, there's not as many PFP collections happening right now. There's just not the same appetite for them as there used to be. Um, I, I have a world of women, so I'm really happy to be part of that group. The world of women actually was a huge inspiration for me for the Medusa collection. Um, cause I saw how you could combine art with community building in a really strong way. Uh, when I discovered world of women, but you know, in terms of, projects and I, I don't I don't have a crypto punk but I wish I did <laughs> um but I am interested to see what Noah Davis does with with them as the brand leader I think it'll be really interesting to see what you know his experience at Christie's how it how it lends itself to that um but yeah I mean just in terms of projects I'm excited about in general um there's you know I am excited to see more traditional art world like really great artists from the traditional art world getting into the NFT space now like Rena and Branovich who I mentioned earlier um there's a drop by this artist Wally Rod through the platform art world that's dropping tomorrow that I'm excited about so I know it's cool to see all these people getting into the space, <clears throat> even though the market is has slowed down. Um, so I don't know. That's cool for me. So I think that leans into our next question. What is your message as an artist to aspiring artists in NFT? I'm not sure if it's just NFTs or art in general. Uh, what is your wise words of wisdom? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> um, I mean, I think my message for just all people in general <laughs> is to be curious and to not be afraid to experiment. Um, I think these are the keys to having like a rich, joyful life. And so, you know, those are the qualities that got me into NFTs and keep me here. Um but yeah, you know, that's what's cool for me to see some of these artists, these traditional art world artists that are older, you know, in their 50s or older, 
trying NFTs for the first time. And to be honest, like, I don't think they're doing it perfectly. But my first NFTs weren't perfect either. Like, I, I don't make NFTs of my pit that are just pictures of my paintings anymore. You know, and but I'm not embarrassed that they're there. I that was part of my journey. I stand by it. Lovely advice. And yeah, absolutely love the takeaway that being curious and being unafraid to experiment is what leads to a rich, joyful life. Uh, so I think now that we've come to the end of the show, um, believe the audience are all working away with many different thoughts and insights. Uh, definitely one of the most fascinating and captivating episodes that not only I've done, but also that I've listened to. So Mika, thank you. This has been amazing. If you would like to follow what Mika is doing, catch her on Twitter at Mika Marple. Uh, links will also be available on the show notes once the podcast episode is released. And yeah, Mika, once again, thank you not only for the fantastic insights, but also for everything that you do to dial up the volume around these important topics, uh, also for the people in the back. And yeah, definitely the industry and the space where people in the back need to need to listen and hear as well. So I look forward to seeing where to from here. And to the audience, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very sure you're walking away with a new perspective on things. So I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode of The Future of NFTs brought to you by Adlunum. Cheers, everybody. Have a good day. Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. And I'm, my DMs are open, too, if there's any questions that people didn't get a chance to ask. But yeah, thank you so much, uh, Nadia. You're a wonderful host. <laughs> Perfect, Mika. It was, yeah, absolutely my pleasure. And I think this ethos of your DM being open is just such a good way to end off this whole conversation that inclusivity means access, you know, to people who are out there making things. Um, and yeah, this is what we are all doing. So lots of love to everybody. Catch you next week. You've been listening to The Future of NFTs. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or iTunes. Connect with AdLunum on Twitter at AdLunum Inc. or our website, adlunum.cc.